Good morning. How are y'all? I feel like I haven't seen a lot of y'all in a while. I've been hopping around. My brother Stephen brought the word last week, and um, I'm thankful that he was here because I know that Stephen rightly divides the word of truth. And um, I was actually downtown at the at the main campus preaching on Romans 15. Um, and so what we decided to do before Advent season, before Christmas, um, there's a little gap between when we finish Romans and when we start the Advent season. And so what we decided to do is Stephen, myself, and then Lee are going to preach three sermons from the book of Luke, Gospel of Luke. We've just been in a letter, we've been in Paul so long, uh, it was time to go into the go back into the Gospels a little bit. And so since Stephen preached Luke 15, I'll be preaching Luke 16. So if you want to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Or you can follow up on the screen. Actually, if you have a Bible, or actually, everybody can stand for the reading of God's Word. Um, We do this... Simply out of reverence for God's Word. We believe the Bible has authority over our lives, over this church, and this is just an act of honoring uh, that belief. The Holy Spirit says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame." Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let's pray. Father, speak to us this morning through your Holy Scripture. Pierce our hearts, convict us of our guilt in light of your holiness, and give us hope that your Word has more power in it than any force on this earth. And all these things we ask in your Son's name, Amen. Wow! honest with you, I don't think I heard that story a lot growing up. 
I don't know if my pa- well, I, I went to a church where they didn't preach through books of the Bible, so I, I can see why they would pass that up. Um, we're going to get into this later, but I, you know, I wondered why I was preparing the sermon this week, why I didn't, don't hear that story a lot. Um, it is a fascinating parable. This story that we just read, the story that Jesus is telling, is what the Bible calls a parabole or a parable. A parable is basically an extended analogy, an extended comparison told in order to explain a larger truth. So basically, Jesus is trying to make a big point by telling this story. And that point, as we'll see, is to teach us about the nature of the kingdom of God and to warn us about the consequences of our sin if we refuse to repent of that sin. Many scholars over the years have wondered if this story is in fact a parable at all, and they've wondered that because it's the only parable Jesus uses actual names Most, however, believe this is a parable because Luke situates this story, he locates this story in a section of parables. He meant to put it here. Luke meant to put this story where he did. Earlier in chapter 16, Jesus tells the parable of the dishonest manager. Earlier in chapter 15, like you saw last week, Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son. Before that, He tells the parable of the lost coin. Before that, the parable of the lost sheep. It's pretty clear, based on Luke's formatting in this gospel, that the story of Lazarus and the rich man is a parable and that Jesus has a specific purpose for telling it. And that's our task this morning to unpack that. Of the 23 parables that Jesus tells in the gospel of Luke... Sixteen of them are found only in Luke. And this is one of them. You won't find this anywhere else in the Bible. And you have to admit, if you're a Christian and you've never read this story, or if you're not a Christian and you're just now hearing this story, it's unique. First of all, it's the only parable Jesus ever told that takes place in hell. And there's a reason for that. Let's begin with the first three verses. If you're new here, what we do, we believe that since the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit, that it comes from the very breath of God, we believe we take that seriously. And we believe that the way to preach God's Word is to go verse by verse so that we can understand what God is telling His church. Okay? So that's what we're going to do. Let's go through the first three verses. There was, verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Verse 20, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Don't, get, don't miss this one. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. In the first three verses, there are some remarkable similarities with the prodigal son. I don't know if you caught that. For y'all that heard this last week, first, Jesus says, as, as Stephen explained last week, Jesus says the prodigal son, quote-unquote, longed to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. Here, in verse 16, Jesus says that Lazarus, quote-unquote, longed to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Number two, the prodigal son and Lazarus are exposed to what were then at the time seen as unclean animals, pigs and dogs. 
So at the beginning of this passage, if we're meant to understand one thing, it's this. Lazarus is the lowest of the low. Except unlike Hollywood, there's no comeback. There's no rags to riches story. He was poor in life, and then he died. Now the rich man, on the other hand, is obviously very wealthy. It says that he wore purple. Now that might seem weird, but at that time in history, the color purple was very rare, it was very expensive, and it was synonymous with royalty. That's why if you ever go down to New Orleans and there's purple and gold and green, that's the, the color of, of royalty of kings. The point that Luke is establishing here is this. The rich man had everything and anything money could buy, and Lazarus had absolutely nothing. So much so that dogs were actually licking his sores. So he's disabled. He's sick. He has nothing. But in a world of such inequality, of a world with poverty and wealth, of happiness and misery, of strength and disablement, extravagance and destitution, what do these men ultimately have in common? Well, Jesus tells us they both died. Death is the great equalizer, church. Neither of them could escape the fall. Both of them were sons of Adam. Both were subject to death, to decay. No matter their wealth, no matter their color of their skin, no matter their last name. I think it's important for us to remember that as we're reading this story because I think the power of this parable lies in the fact that it's told from the other side of the grave. There is no hierarchy in hell. Verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. After these men died, they faced the same judgment. The purple clothes and the fine linen didn't matter anymore. The poverty, the handicaps didn't matter anymore. Did you notice how Jesus gives Lazarus' name, yet doesn't bother naming the rich man? This man had anything and everything he wanted in life. Wealth, servants, power. And yet history records him as nothing more than a nameless rich man who turned into dust. Job chapter 1 verse 21 says, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord gave. What's he say? The Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I think it's safe to say that I would think, me talking about Abby, I think it is safe to say that I would think far less of myself and far more of God if I thought a little more about my own death. I think a lot of people today think talking about death is morbid. Now, it can be. It can be weird. But think about it. If I thought more about my own death, it would humble me. First of all, it would remind me that things don't last. It would remind me of what's really important. It would bring me back constantly to the gospel and the importance and the centrality of Christ. I would speak differently. I would desire different things. I would think about different things if death were upon me. Don't miss this, friends. You need to understand that every ounce of your sinful flesh wants you to think of death as something that won't happen for another hundred years. The world is terrified of death. 
I recently did my granddad's funeral a couple weeks ago. And I couldn't help, I, I gave the eulogy and I gave the sermon. I couldn't help but think to myself, first of all, my granddad had more hair than I do, which is weird. And I couldn't help thinking to myself, I was looking at granddad's casket. And of course, they do them up, make them look good. And I kept thinking, someone's going to do that to me. Someone is going to dress me up and put me in a coffin and then put me in the ground. Unless Jesus comes back, somebody's going to do my funeral. Think about that. Everyone in here is going to have one. Everyone in here, unless you just jump out in the ocean and we can't find you anymore, somebody's going to dress you up like they did my granddaddy. Think about that. Just like granddad, just like the rich man, just like Lazarus. My brother, I'm really proud of my brother. I wasn't proud of my brother in college, but I was proud of what he did before college. And my brother had to write an essay for his application to Yale. And they, one of the big questions they have is they say, write a poem, a book, or a song that has greatly influenced your life. And because it's Yale, most people do poems or books. And my brother did a song. And he actually got into Yale. I can't believe he did because it was a horrible essay. I read it. <laughs> he did it on Tim McGraw's Live Like You Were Dying. I thought it was a joke when he told me he did it. But he actually did that. And they let him in. And I think they, and they asked him why he chose that. And he said, that's how I live my life. Death changes the way we live, friends. Christians are people who have to think about death. We have to think about death because Jesus purchased life for us through death. We will enter glory through death. We will be raised from death. Christians cannot be uncomfortable with death. But as we're going to see, the rich man wasn't thinking about death. He loved his life too much. Verses 22 through 23. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment... He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So both men die, both are judged. Lazarus dwells with Abraham in paradise, and the rich man goes and burns in torment in Hades. They can see each other, but there's like a canyon between them. I think it's important at this point to explain theologically what's, what's going on here. In the Old Testament, Sheol is the place of where the souls of the dead go. But here's the, here's, the, here's the caveat here. Everyone in the Old Testament, both righteous and unrighteous, goes to Sheol. The Hebrew word Sheol is translated into Greek as Hades. And it's described in Scripture as a place of darkness under the earth. And while all of the dead, both righteous and unrighteous, go to Hades, they don't go to the same place. In Luke chapter 16, we see that the righteous are sent to be at Abraham's side, or literally in Abraham's bosom, as the Greek says. Abraham is, of course, the father of the Jewish people, the man of faith. So everyone who's with Abraham are the people who had faith and were accounted righteous before God. What happened when someone died in the Old Testament is two things. Their soul went to Hades and their body decayed and withered away. But catch this. That's not what happened when Jesus died. 
In the book of Acts, Peter quotes Psalm 16 and describes Jesus' death like this. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. So Jesus broke the mold. Instead of being sent where Lazarus was sent, Jesus descended into Hades after dying in order to ransom the faithful, liberating them from the power of Sheol. He was then resurrected. Therefore today in light of the Gospel, we believe that Christ has made a way for people to go not directly to Hades, but to heaven. I get that question a lot. Where did Jesus go when He died? There you go. The wicked, however, remain in Hades in utter darkness, in fire, in flame, in agony, in anguish, in torment, until the end of the age when, if you're reading Revelation, death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire in eternal hell. That's a lot of theology, I understand. This is where the rich man finds himself. Jesus says he is in torment, but he can see Lazarus and Abraham. And this is what he says to Abraham. Verse 24, And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you, that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm or canyon has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. This rich man is in such torment, anguish, and horrific pain that all he wants is a drop of water on his tongue. Think about that. People in hell are in so much pain, all they want, it is so hot, they are roasting at such an unimaginable degree that all they want is a drop of water. That is hell, ladies and gentlemen. Let's, let's do away with these pitiful little Satan and pitchfork cartoons. Hell is not something to joke about. No one in hell is joking. He's close enough that he can see paradise. Yet this great canyon has ensured that while he is in complete agony and soul-crushing darkness and fire, he will never feel the warmth and the light of God's goodness ever again. He is engulfed in darkness. Who said Jesus doesn't talk about hell? Who said Jesus just all only wants to talk about love? He's talking about hell. This story is proof that you can't understand the love of the gospel until you understand hell first. If you were to call upon Jesus to be saved, you got to know what you're being saved from. Friends, this is it. This story is terrifying, and it should be. That's the point. It's an entire warning. Don't come here. 
Please don't read this parable this morning thinking that hell is for bad people and heaven for good people. Scripture says that we're all bad and we all deserve what this man is enduring. That's why the rich man insists that someone go back and tell his brothers to what? Repent. Repentance and faith is the only way out of hell. A drop of water on his tongue. How hot does it have to be? I just, I, I just fixed on that part. A drop of water on his tongue. This man is burning alive in an, in an eternal, fiery furnace. That's hell. In eternity away from the presence of God. No light, no peace, no joy, no warmth, no kindness. This is how Jonathan Edwards described what awaits each person that refuses to repent of their sins and believe in Jesus. This is how he described hell. Quote, unquote, To be damned is to be perfectly deprived of all good and to, surf, to suffer perfect misery to all eternity as the fruit of the wrath of God for sin. They that are damned are lost. God throws them away and never will take any care of them or show them any mercy. They shall be separated from God. They that are saved shall come near to God to dwell with Him, but they that are damned shall be driven away from Him. God will love those that are saved, but they that are damned, God will be angry with them and hate them and be their enemy forever. They shall have no part with the saints in heaven. They shall see them at a great distance, but they shall never come near them. I think the reason not many of us have heard this preached is because American Christianity doesn't know what to do with this. The prosperity gospel doesn't want to hear this because the guy in hell is what? He was rich. The universalists and Rob Bells of the world don't want to touch this because people do, in fact, go to hell. Jesus said it. The nominal, moralistic, works-based, I do this, I get this kind of church doesn't want this because Lazarus literally did nothing his entire life but sit on the ground, but he simply believed in God and now he is in paradise. This parable destroys our American sensibilities and it makes us come face to face with a holy God. You know what's remarkable to me? In heaven, we're completely made new by the Spirit. There is no pain. There's no sadness. There are no tears. There's no crying. There's no remorse. There's no sorrow. In heaven, we're renewed in Christ. We're engulfed in glory. We are completely in joy. But in hell, they are just as fleshly and self-seeking as they were on earth. I mean, listen to him. He's still thirsty. He's still thirsty. Listen to him. He's still ordering Lazarus to go fetch water. If I was Lazarus, if he could hear me, I'd be like, I ain't getting nothing anymore. This man hasn't changed at all. Hell is filled with miserable, loathsome, selfish people who are probably well-liked on earth. But for the souls in hell, their consciences confirm they are where they deserve to be. But just like this rich man, you won't find anyone in hell repenting. They still love themselves. They still love God. That is their hell. 
knowing that what separated him is faith. And that just has to add to it, doesn't it? You mean all I had to do was believe on the work of Christ? You mean I didn't have to toil and do all these things? You mean all He's over there and I'm in here because He believed in Jesus and I didn't? That's it? That has to add to the horror of hell. You know, I've often heard people explain the existence of hell like disciplining a child. Someone will ask, well, you know, why is there a hell of God's love? I think that's a very honest question to ask. And I've heard people reply, well, because God wants what's best for us, and if He doesn't discipline us, then you know, we won't obey. I think there's definitely truth in that. God the Father definitely disciplines His children. But make no mistake, church, hear me. Part of the horror of hell is the fact that the people in hell aren't God's children. And the wrath of God is not disciplining them. It is not for their good. Criminals are executed by the state of Georgia not for their good. Why do we execute criminals? Because the law demands that justice be served. That's what's happening in hell. I'm going to read something. This is one of the, this is one of the hardest verses in the Bible, I think, to wrap your mind around. I just want you to listen. This is in Revelation 19. Listen to what the angels are doing in, in this text. This is John re re recording what he's seeing and, and hearing. After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For His judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with, his, with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Do you know what's taking place there? The angels in heaven are praising God for pouring out His wrath upon His enemies. They're praising Him because He's just. God gets glory not simply for His love, but because God will always do what is right. And what is right is to send criminals to be punished for offending an infinitely holy God. The problem today is that most Americans think that only a mean God would send people to hell. It's so off-putting. I mean, well, I thought God's love. Why are you talking about hell? No, that's no, God's love. You see how they can twist that? I think the reason this concept is foreign to us is because of one reality. We don't think we deserve hell. We expect God to send everyone to heaven, or at least the really bad people, certainly not us. I mean, like Hitler and stuff. He couldn't possibly just punish sinners. We're mold we're, what we're doing when we extract this concept of hell from our minds is we're molding God into our image and the thought of a God who actually punishes evil is completely foreign to us. But God is not like us, church. He's holy. And as sinners, we are His natural enemies. We deserve hell. The essence of repentance 
is saying, I acknowledge, God, that I deserve hell and that you are holy and just to sit me there. That's repentance. If someone doesn't believe that, they cannot be saved because they don't believe they need to be saved. Sinners suffer the wrath of God in hell because God is a holy God. He will not tolerate sin. God will not be in the presence of rebels. God will not let His holy name be defamed forever. And the only way He tolerates us, the only way that He can call us into His presence, the only way that Lazarus, that measly beggar, is able to come into paradise forever is by the Son of God taking flesh, dying on the cross, and with His innocence, His righteousness, His holiness being credited to us, He absorbing our wrath, Jesus took hell for you on the cross. That is the gospel, friends. Jesus is the one who purchased Lazarus' salvation. Jesus is the one who purchases Abraham's salvation. Jesus is the one who purchases paradise for all who would believe on Him. Do you see now how hell gives us an appreciation for what Jesus did on the cross? The only difference is because He is a God-man, He can take on the cross what it takes forever for people in hell to pay. Keep in mind, Abraham came before Jesus. And he was still covered in the blood of Jesus because, Genesis 15 says, he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's Jesus' righteousness. Everyone in heaven is covered in the righteousness of Christ before or after Jesus. Verses 27 through 31. He said, Then I beg you, Father. So he knows now he can't, he can't leave. He knows he's going to burn forever. And he says, Then I beg you, Father, to send them to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the Bible. Let them hear them. This man is roasting away in hell, now coming to the in terms, he's coming to the terms of the fact that he could go 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 years in hell and never be closer than when he once started. He's coming to grips with the fact that he's going to, without stop, without pause, without ceasing for eternity, being roasted. And now he's thinking, but i got to tell my family. See, his, his mind is still on the things of the world. You know, when I was reading this, I couldn't help but think about the countless funeral services that take place in this town, in this state, in this country where family members gather around a man who hated God in his heart. And instead of using that service to make sure people hear the gospel, his family and friends make jokes and they talk about how he's golfing with Jesus or how he's on vacation or how he's in the cloud in the sky or how he's listening to some song he always loved. And meanwhile, the dead man is crying to his family and friends from hell, meanwhile screaming, it's not a joke! I'm not okay. God is pouring His wrath out on me right now and you're making jokes at my funeral. Repent of your sins. Do not take the gospel for granted. Do not take a holy God lightly. Take this gift that He's given you and take it now. 
Friends, if this passage does one thing for us this morning, I hope it scares the hell out of you. Literally. It's not a laughing matter. What the hell, people say. Do they know what they say when they say that? You see how now hell is just kind of a bad word. It's just something we just make light of. It's not light. And I believe the last two verses are the most shocking. Verses 30 and 31. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. And Abraham said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Wow. Think about that. I'll be honest with y'all. If I saw a dead guy coming out of a grave, it was like, hey, read your Bible and believe. I'd go, okay. <laughs> like, okay, all right. Abraham says, no. The power of Scripture has even more power than that. I don't even know what's more astonishing about that last statement. The fact that our hearts are so hardened that a man being raised from the dead wouldn't convince us to believe. Or the fact that Holy Scripture is so powerful that it has the power to change hearts even more than seeing a resurrection take place. Friends, we have the power to call people out of darkness into light and to set captives free, and it's a book that you merely have to open and read. That Bible is powerful. The power of the Scriptures is the only thing powerful enough to save sinners, friends. This rich man said, no, 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 they, they won't believe the Scriptures. They need someone raised from the dead. That's what he said. I know a lot of American families that said, no, 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 I, 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 we're not, we, don't, we need something more than Scriptures. We need a band. We need a gymnasium. We need refreshments. We need friends. I need a, I need a big youth group if my kids are going to believe in the Bible. I know countless people are saying, no, 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 it's not, not, I, I need something more than the Scriptures. I need a good worship experience at my church. And if Jesus is telling us the very same thing that Abraham's telling the old man, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. If someone doesn't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if their church has a really big gym. Neither will they be convinced if their church has a really good worship band. Neither will they be convinced if, if we give them anything. The, what we have to change people is right in front of us. Take it from a man frying in hell. The gospel is enough. I heard a pastor last year say something profound that really struck me. He said, if we could catch a glimpse of hell for five seconds, the world would be saved. I like that. Here's your glimpse. Here's your glimpse from the Scriptures. There is a judgment. There is a holy God. There is a hell. But friends, there is a gospel that saves. I want to. I'll, I'll end with this. I really don't like. It's something I really just. We just need to. We just need to strike it out of our vocabulary in the church, because I don't see it in the Bible. Is the word afterlife? I don't. I don't like that word. 
You know why I don't like that word? Because it, just by virtue of what it says, it's acting like life is here, and then there's something after this. The Bible says that Jesus is life, and that heaven is life. Let's strike that word. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Friends, we haven't even woken up yet. If eternity with Christ is life, I think that the souls in hell now know what the word death means. And we have a decision to make. It is very simple. Will you choose life? Or will you choose death? Because death is a lot more than a guy laying in a casket. It is a person agonizingly, terrifyingly, horrifically in pain, in torment, forever cast away from the light and the warmth and the goodness and the mercy and the love of God. Doesn't this just make us go, how loving is our Savior? How kind He is. How kind He is to take a blemished bride and say, you're not worthy of Me. You deserve eternal fire. I will take the fire for you. Believe in Me. That's the Gospel. If we read this this morning, and all it does is cause us to to despair and to be afraid of hell, Let that fear cause you to run all the way to the cross of Christ. If that is what you do, then you're doing exactly what the Holy Spirit has written this for. And the fact that hell gives us not just a worldly sorrow, it gives us a greater love and worship and appreciation for the sacrifice and love and kindness of our Lord Jesus. Choose life. Or choose death. If there's two people that understand how simple that decision is and how much hangs in the balance, it's Lazarus and the rich man. There are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Lazaruses and rich men today. <clears throat> That's what's shocking about the parable. It's, it's a, just a parable, but there is so much truth packed in it. And eternity hangs in the balance. Let's pray. Father God, You are holy, You are mighty, You are just, and we worship You for being holy, for being mighty, and for being just. Your yes means yes, Your no means no. And Your Word is good and we can take it to the bank that when You say we believe in Your Son Jesus that You will honor that and You will give us eternal life. Father, we love You. But before we can love You, we fear You. We fear what we deserve. We fear Your justice. We know, we approach the cross of Calvary knowing that we're all criminals. We are all rich men. Father, humble our hearts so that we can be Lazarus. We can reach out to You in faith. All these things we ask in Your Son's name.
Senhor Jesus.